So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Uh, by the way, my name's Dave. If I haven't introduced myself yet, I'd love to meet you after the service if you get a chance to say hello. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We've been working through the series in Luke. We're in the middle section of Luke chapters 4 through 9, which we've called the first followers of Jesus. The first followers of Jesus. So Luke chapter 4 through 9 really zeroes in on the calls to discipleship, many calls to discipleship. So we're kind of standing back and we're studying these, these uh, original documents and we're saying, what is it? that enabled Jesus to build this unstoppable movement. And what we're going to see again and again is these, Jesus amazed his first followers, and then he just calls them specifically to follow him as a rabbi, to be a, a student of him, to hear his words, to put into practice what he said. This week, we're turning the corner, uh, the end of chapter 7, moving into chapter 8. It'll be found on page 864 in the Black Bibles, and we're calling it this week, Outsiders Become Disciples outsiders become disciples. It's a major theme of Luke, particularly, more than the other Gospels, more than Matthew, more than Mark, more than John. Luke is going to emphasize how Jesus is calling outsiders, people that didn't seem worthy to the religious insiders. He's going to call those outsiders to come and to follow him, to become his disciples. So as we think of outsiders and insiders, I'm, I'm remembering something that just happened a few weeks ago. We went to a wedding. Um, it was uh, family, friends. My son was actually in the wedding, one of the groomsmen. Uh, and so it was a, a great wedding, great party, but really a lot more people showed up than they expected. So there were just not enough seats at the reception. They had plenty of food. It was fine. I was fed. But there were not enough seats. So I spent most of the time at the reception standing around, which I was happy to do because my kids were there, my grandkids were there. So I was just happy to be there, Right. Happy to just get to be in the area of this party, but I didn't have a seat. And at one point, I noticed there's this one pristine table with two chairs, and nobody seems to be using it. I just keep seeing it over there. It's very close to our table, right? Like I'm standing, and some of the other friends are at this table sitting, and I just loudly say in my best kind of dad joke voice, well, I'm going to go sit in that table, right? And I kind of, I'm exaggerating and I'm making a point, right? Because I was actually being silly because that was the bride and groom's table. And if you know anything about wedding traditions in America, you don't just go sit at the bride and groom's table, right? I was the outsider. I did not belong at that insider table. That would have been a violation of all social norms. I share that story with you because that's just like a common illustration of things that we see in everyday life where we know that's not for me. I'm an outsider. Only insiders get to partake, right? That's the insider table. That's for the bride and groom. And we know that from different experiences in our culture. We're going to see a story like that here with Jesus and his disciples. We're going to see someone who's an obvious outsider violating the social norms because of Jesus, because of Jesus. Jesus is constantly making outsiders disciples, calling us to follow him. So let's read the story. It's chapter 7, verse 36 through verse 8, 3. I'm just going to start with the first few verses, and then we'll work through the rest of it as we unfold the, the text this morning. So starting in verse 36, one of the Pharisees, that's the religious teacher, the religious leader of their day, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them 
with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I'm going to stop it there. We'll, we'll pray. We believe that this is not just um, a lecture. This is not just information exchange. But, but this is a supernatural moment as we sit and listen to God. And so we always, always want to pray that His Spirit would be with us and meet with us and help us to hear His voice. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that You would be here, that Your Spirit would open our eyes, that Your Spirit would uh, magnify our need and magnify the way that You love to meet our needs in Jesus. God, we pray that you would be honored and that we would hear you clearly. Help us to focus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the big idea is outsiders become disciples. Outsiders become disciples. And as I said before, Luke emphasizes this more than the other gospel writers. Um, It's a major theme of Luke. He talks about this again and again. Those who are the wrong gender, those who are the wrong class, those who are the wrong Um, religion, those who are the wrong race, outsiders who have then been called by Jesus and told, no, come follow me. You're you're a part of this movement. And and so we see this again in this story, in this couple of stories. And so we want to see these three things unfold. Number one, disciples, outsiders that have become disciples, these disciples will adore Jesus. Disciples adore Jesus. That word particularly makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't know if it does you. Adore feels a little strong to me, um, but that's what we see biblically. Disciples adore Jesus. Number two, disciples are set free. Disciples are set free. And that's a, that's a passive phrase there, and that's on purpose. We kind of talked to that. I hashed through the sermon with the, t- uh, the staff during the week and with my wife. It's like it kind of bugs us when you've got like active voice and passive voice, but this is on purpose, right? This is passive. Why, why is that? It's something that happens to you, okay? Disciples are set free. It's something that God does to you. And then number three, we'll return to active. Um, disciples invest in the mission. Disciples invest in the mission, okay? So these are our three ideas. Disciples adore Jesus. Disciples are set free. And disciples invest in the mission. Number one, disciples adore Jesus. So Jesus is always uh, taking outsiders making them into disciples, students, followers of him as a rabbi. And those disciples actually adore Jesus. We see a model of what kind of disciple we are supposed to be. We should also adore Jesus. And so we've looked at these verses already, verses 36 through 40. He's invited to the Pharisee's house. uh, And the Pharisee was a religious teacher. They are often very wealthy, uh, an influential leader in the Jewish economy. And so he goes to the Pharisee's house and it says he reclined at table. You see that in verse 36? He reclined at table. So we have the word recliner. And in our culture, a recliner is something you put in your living room, but not at your table, right? Like it's two different things. But in this culture, they would actually recline at table. They would 
kind of lean on one arm and eat with the other arm, often on a cushion or some kind of mat, and they'd have a low table that would be like, kind of like a coffee table, we would say in our culture, right? And so that was the norm. It's not like chairs had not been invented yet. This was just kind of the normal way of eating. And you see this in other Asian cultures. Often they'll sit on cushions on the floor. I grabbed some pictures here so you could see it. And as you see it, it becomes very off- obvious how um, the body and the head is, is leaning towards the table and then the feet are trailing out against it, which will make more sense of some of the dynamics of what unfolds here in the story. It says in verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So it says, a woman of the city, that would have been a euphemism, a nice way of saying that she was a sinner. And so just to make sure we don't miss the point, then Luke adds, she was a sinner, right? So just to be really clear, okay, uh, it, it was like, Uh, This was a streetwalker of the city, and just so you don't miss it, she was a bad woman, okay? She, She was a sinful woman, and when she heard that he was reclining at table, she came, and she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So, Uh, This part is normal. Uh, Using fine ointments and perfumes and oils was normal in their culture. It's becoming more trendy in our culture to use essential oils for perfuming and for medical treatments and uh, as lotions and all kinds. So that's that's kind of making a resurgence, but it was very normal in their culture, right? They would use it to anoint ceremonially. They would use it for perfume. They would use it for all kinds of hygiene uses. And so this is a somewhat normal thing. Uh, We would say it's probably an expensive thing, a very fine a precious thing that she brought, this ointment. And it says in verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So as you saw, you know, the feet are trailing out to one side. So she's coming up behind him and she's, she meets the feet before she meets the rest of them. Okay. So just kind of to understand how this proceeds. And she comes upon his feet and she begins to anoint his feet. Uh, now, when I was talking this through with the staff again, I was like, This is pretty normal stuff, you know, like anointing, um, weeping, kissing. Their culture did this a lot more than our culture does. And so I just want to emphasize that part because first reading, you know, you're reading your Bible for the first time. Maybe you're like, what is going on? Right? Like some of this just stuff comes off really strange. Uh, they, They kissed a lot more in that culture. They anointed each other with oil, right? Like a lot of this is very normal. So uh, when I first talked this through with the staff, I was like, yeah, this is like very normal stuff, you know, like all of this is totally normal. And they're like, but what about the hair, right? Like, that can't be normal. Someone rubbing their hair on his feet, that can't be normal. And I'm like, okay, okay, you're right. Yeah, that's, that's not normal. Uh, so this is in the context of normal stuff, she's going over the top. That's probably the better way of saying it. So normal expressions of affection, anointing someone with oil, not crazy in that culture, crazy in our culture, not crazy in that culture. Um, weeping over someone, not crazy in that culture, kind of weird in our culture. Kissing someone, again, It's kind of weird in our culture. We don't kiss that much like they do in Mediterranean culture and in this ancient Jewish context. So a lot of that was normal, but but yeah, she's she's going over the top. This is more than normal. So kind of taking normal expressions and pushing it. And that's what we see taking place here. She is adoring him. She's loving him will be the word that Jesus uses later. She's expressing practical love, praise, honor for Jesus. And look at what happens? What's next? It says, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, 
he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So it seems obvious now that this Pharisee is kind of testing him, and the Pharisee is saying, like, if, if he was really a prophet, like, if he really knew anything, if he was really a man of God, he, he would know this was a sinful woman. Like, this is crazy. This is going too far. He should, he should stop this. And that's what the Pharisee is thinking. And verse 40, Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now this is interesting because it, it reads like the Pharisee said it to himself and nobody could hear it. And Jesus magically knows his thought. We, we don't really know exactly. Obviously, Jesus has all kinds of power and Jesus could do that kind of thing. We're not sure exactly what's happening, but he's probably freaked out that Jesus is, is answering him like this. All right, Simon, I got something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. And that'll be our next point where we get into Jesus's explanation. But I want to sit on this point for just a minute and say, what is it here that we see this disciple of Jesus doing that we can do? Is there something here for us to practice? And we see a pattern that's being repeated here that that shows up again and again in Scripture. And that pattern is that followers of God adore God. Followers of Jesus adore Jesus. In many ways, Jesus was a normal first century rabbi. He was a teacher that called his students to learn what he was teaching and to repeat what he was doing. That's normal. That's normal rabbi. But Jesus pushed the envelope and he welcomed adoration and worship. It's one of the largest proofs for a doctrine that we call the Trinity, uh, that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus was indeed God. One of the largest proofs of that is that Jesus received worship. He received adoration. A disciple of Jesus is not just someone who learns facts about Jesus, but it's someone who is in awe of Jesus, who is amazed by Jesus. Someone who has gone through the process, like in Isaiah 6, where you've come face to face with the holiness of God. You've been completely undone. You've been um, morally deconstructed before God and recognize, I am a wretch. I am a sinner. And then you come face to face with the atoning, pursuing, loving, forgiving grace of God. And that produces adoration. And so the question for you and for me is, are are we just merely intellectual students or do we actually adore Jesus? And as I said, this makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm not super comfortable uh, with this kind of expressiveness, right? Like this just, it feels a little bit over the top, right? Um, So so how do we do this? We, We don't have... Jesus physically here with us, we're not going to adore him in this exact way, right? Uh, But we are going to run to Jesus. What does it look like for us to run to Jesus to express honor, worship, adoration to him? I think one of the key ways that we do this is uh, through song. Uh, We sing songs to Jesus. Uh, Again, this is something that happened in the Old Testament, something that happens in the New Testament. Um, Students of the Lord uh, learn his word and read it and study it. But we also express with our emotions and with joy that we love and honor God. Adoration. Worship. So I really want to challenge you to consider worship as we gather together to sing praises to Jesus and talk about God's holiness, to talk about God's grace, uh, to sing to him, that we consider that a discipline of our life. It's not just something that like happens to us. 
It's not something where you just come in in a theater and you're watching other people do something. It's something you're actively participating in. And, and recognize that one of the great barriers to you actively adoring Jesus in public worship is the religion of our age, which is consumerism. You ever heard the term consumerism before? Consumerism is this buying and selling culture where we think we can buy commodities. We think we can buy our way out of the mess that we're in. If we buy the right products, we'll be content, we'll be happy, right? And so we can kind of have that in the back of our heads even when we come to church. And even though we're not charging tickets at the door, you still have this kind of consumeristic mindset where you come in and you think, I'm here to consume something. I'm here to consume worship, to watch something. This looks like a theater. I'm here to watch something that takes place. But you're actually coming to participate actively, adoring God, adoring who He is, adoring Jesus. That's, that's what we're called to as the people of God. It's, it's the work of the people. That's actually literally what the word liturgy means. I don't know if you know, that's like ancient word liturgy. We usually use it to talk about written prayers or the order of worship for a church, but it means the work of the people. We're called to the, the work together, the participation of worshiping God. We want to make sure that you see that as an active discipline. I think another negative effect that consumerism has on our culture is, is you can think that like the professionals worship for you. Um, so today was one of those days where it was kind of stripped down and, and Chris was alone. There wasn't a full band here. Um, and so it was, it's a little more simple. And he, he actually made that appeal. He's like, I need you to participate or this is not going to work, Right. And so sometimes we have a full band, and they're, they're rocking out, and it's awesome, and we love it, and we could just sit and watch, right? But even on those days when it's loud and there's more happening, we, we are to participate. We are being called into active adoration of Jesus. Uh, I want to give you a specific thing that you could do this week. I've got a clipboard up here, uh, right here on the floor, on the edge of the stage. We've got another clipboard over here. Uh, We want to start sending out an email uh, every week to those that want to prepare more formally for worship. We can send out the songs for you uh, that week and say, hey, these are the songs we're doing. Occasionally, we'll probably mix in some training as well, uh, like just some ideas to think about, about worship and what that's about. Give you the text we're going to be preaching over that week. Invite you to, to pray and prepare for gathered worship. That you would take it seriously, right? It's not just for the band. It's, it's for the whole congregation. So if you're willing to jump on that team, uh, you can give me your name and your email. And we've got these clipboards up here. You can do that afterwards. But even if you don't sign up for the weekly email, like, like come and participate. <laughs> That's what we're asking you to do. And I would just say, and I've said this many times before, if you're not great at singing, uh, we don't care. Okay? We just want you to yell. So just come and yell. And those of us that can sing, we'll make it sound pretty, but just come and yell. We need, we need your energy. We need your participation. Speak the things of God with us. We do this in unity. We call this worship as we sing together with God's people. Not begrudgingly, not heartless, but, but passionately, purposefully. A, a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline, meaning you have to try. And it's spiritual, meaning you need the Holy Spirit to empower you to do it with your heart. Um, so pray that God would give you the freedom to do that. Okay, second point. As we transition to the second point, we have a couple of questions we want to ask. Um, number one question is, which of these characters do you connect more with? Do you connect more with the religious insider, or do you connect more with the sinful outsider? Uh, do you see yourself in the story? Does this remind you of yourself as you read the story? Are you the one judging what's taking place, thinking that you've got it together, and that Jesus is bad, and she's bad, and everybody should get their stuff together? Or are you like the sinful woman who is just, just blown away by Jesus? You know you're a sinner. And you're just blown away by Jesus. Which, 
Which character do you connect more with? And then here's the second question. Why on earth, why on earth would she think it's okay to approach Jesus like this? Why? Why on earth? Was it, was it her self-esteem? Had she been given participation trophies growing up so she knew that she was okay and she could do it? I don't think so. I think it's Jesus. I think Jesus is the reason she approached Jesus. I don't think it was something in herself. So let's look at the story that Jesus tells because that question is the question on the mind of the religious leader. The religious leader is like, why, why is he letting this happen? This isn't right. He's upset about this. So disciples are set free. Verses 41 through 50, disciples are set free. And I said earlier, this is purposefully passive voice, not active voice, right? I try to, when I'm doing a sermon just for the sake of like making it make sense, you try to have like your points go together, right? Um, But this is a little off because I got the first point is something you do. The last point is something you do. The middle point is something that's done to you. And that's really important. So disciples are set free. We see this in verses 41 through 50. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Roughly speaking, this is like two months wages versus two years wages. We'll say a few thousand dollars versus maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a pretty big, pretty big gap, right? So one person owes a significant amount of money. The other person owes an amount of money they could never pay back ever, right? Two big amounts. And he goes on and he says, he uh, canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So Jesus is basically using a parable to teach Simon the Pharisee. He's like, okay, which one will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So he says, you you gave me no water for my feet. That was just a common courtesy in that day and time. Again, cultural difference. Uh, If I'm driving for hours and hours and I stop at my uncle's house, he's going to say, do you want to use the bathroom? Do you want a glass of water? You know, there's just like common things and you just expect it. And if I say, can I use your bathroom? He's like, "Mm, no, you're dirty and gross. I don't really want you in there. Like that'd be offensive, right? And that's kind of how Jesus is being treated by this Pharisee. The Pharisee is kind of holding back from the common courtesies and hygiene of that day. He's like, you didn't even give me any water for my feet, man. But she's been weeping over my feet. She's been caring for my basic needs. You see this woman, I entered your house. You gave me no water. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Again, the hair, it's over the top. Okay, verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Again, that would have been a common courtesy. Do you want to wash up? Do you want to freshen up? Here's some oil, right? That just would have been a common thing they would do. He didn't do that for Jesus, but she has anointed his feet. Verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A growing tension that comes up between Jesus and the religious leaders is is his insistence that he can forgive sins. It keeps coming up. It's going to happen again and again in the gospel of Luke, but also in the other gospels as well. 
Jesus is going to forgive sins. He's speaking for God himself. He is the embodiment of Yahweh himself, the God of the Old Testament. Here, forgiving sins. And people are like, who, who is this? What's going on? What is happening here? This is something really significant. And Jesus is pointing out how her actions demonstrate the state of her heart. He's saying, do you see how she acts? That's because of the freedom that she's been granted. So I grabbed a picture of someone burning a mortgage. We paid off our mortgage a few years ago at the church. Uh, not in real life. Not, or not in real life. It's both real life. Not in our life, our personal life. But the church paid off the mortgage. And that grants the church financial freedom to be able to spend on other things. Does that make sense? And so now the church has this freedom to act that she didn't have before. We, we can do more things. We could hire more pastors or, or spend more money on missionaries or you know, run different mis, uh, missions now, pay for other things because we're not paying for the building any longer. It's this great freedom. And Jesus is using this analogy to say, if you've been forgiven, you've been set free to act. You've been set free so that you're no longer like bound to sin. I'm no longer just addicted to my sin anymore, but now I'm free to, to love other people. I can kind of take my eyes off myself and, and look out and serve and love others. And Jesus is saying, the way in which she adores me, Jesus is saying, the way that she loved me is because her sins are forgiven. She's set free to act. It's like if you've had an injury and you can't play your favorite sport, and then you're healed, you're now set free to play. So again and again, as we see forgiveness in the Bible, it's this being set free to be fully human. We're no longer ensnared by our sins, but we're now free from that. Jesus bore the, the, the brunt of our sins on the cross. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's this beautiful exchange that takes place where he's punished for our sins, he rises from the dead, proving that he paid that price and defeated that enemy, and he gives us his resurrection power, his resurrection life if we trust in him. Now some point out that the order here is a little confusing because he's like, see, she's forgiven because she did these things. Um, And Daryl Bach is one of the leading Luke scholars in the world today, uh, a theologian that writes on the Gospel of Luke and the, uh, the book of Acts. And what he says is it's a little bit like saying um, it's raining outside because the windows are wet, right? Like that's not perfect programmer logic, but it's like a reasonable way to talk. It's raining outside. How do you know? Well, the windows are wet. Like it's, it's proof. It doesn't make it rain outside. Like wet windows doesn't make the rain. The rain makes the wet windows, but we could still talk that way. It's a common form of speech. It's just a literary device. And so what Bach is just pointing out here is that her actions don't win her forgiveness. Her actions are a result of forgiveness. So again, the question I led into this section with is, what on earth makes her think she can approach the special table? What on earth makes her think as an outsider she can come in and be an insider? Now, one more thing I forgot to to share at the setup is in the ancient world, when they would have a banquet, it'd be normal for outsiders to walk around the courtyard. So kind of like at a wedding, it's normal for people to be there at the party. They just don't sit at the special table, right? So there would be other people at this banquet walking around watching. It would be a display of sorts, and that was normal. So it would have been normal for a sinner 
to be in the midst, just not approach the special table. What on earth made her feel like she could approach? It's Jesus. Jesus is the reason she approaches, and that's still the reason today for us. The reason we can approach God, the reason we can be free to put aside our sin is because of what Jesus has done, how he has acted upon us, because he has saved us. This initiative, this action that Jesus takes, that he initiates, Romans describes it this way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to stop sinning and say, well, when you stop sinning, then I'll love you, because that's very bad news. But it's the good news of he came after us in our sin. He rescued us from our sin. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. So the question is, are you set free? Have you accepted that forgiveness that Jesus offers? Have you recognized that Jesus is your only hope? Or are you, like sometimes happens, so ashamed of your sin, you think, I've got to, I've got to clean this up on my own, and, and then I could come to Jesus. And I want to encourage you that that's the biggest mistake you could ever make. Because sometimes you think, well, I'm, I'm too sinful to approach Jesus. I'm too shameful to approach Jesus. And when you say that, that's actually incredible pride. You're saying, you, you are so bad that Jesus can't handle you. And I want you to know that Jesus can handle anybody. His resurrection proves that he rules and reigns as the king of the universe. He can handle your sin. He can handle my sin. He can handle our shame. So don't think that your shame is so bad that you've got to do some other program before you can come to Jesus. Just run to Jesus. Just run to Jesus. He's the answer. He's the source. Why do we approach? It's not because of us. It's not our self-esteem program. It's not because we're so great. We approach Jesus because of Jesus. We approach Jesus because he is gracious. Disciples are set free. And so as you recognize the freedom that Jesus has given you, you'll be free to love other people, to follow Jesus, to learn from him, to do what he tells you to do, to live in moral purity. So the flip side of that is if you're continuing to struggle with sin, we'll struggle with sin until we die, but if you're continuing to be bound and addicted, you might want to ask yourself, have I actually run to Jesus with this, or am I trying to fix it first before I go to Jesus? We want to help you. Jesus wants to help you, but you got to run straight to Jesus. you got to say, I give up. I surrender. I need Jesus to save me. I need Jesus to set me free. Go to him first, and then he'll, he'll help you with accountability, with prayer, with, with programs. We have things here that we want to help you with. If it's an addiction issue, we have Celebrate Recovery and different ways to help you. But Celebrate Recovery, small groups, biblical counseling, these are all ways to redirect you back to Jesus and say, okay, well, make sure you've allowed Jesus to set you free. Have you come to him with the open hands of faith and said, I can't do this. I need you to, to free me and forgive me, Jesus. And then you take next steps of obedience to him. So does addiction to sin still bind you? Allow Jesus to set you free. Does an inability to love and trust God relationally, do you trust him or do you think he's still out to get you? Allow Jesus to set you free. What about the fear of other people's opinions? Does that still bind you? Ask Jesus to set you free. So again, as we look at these characters, think, am I more like the sinner approaching Jesus because of his goodness, not because of my own righteousness? Or am I more like the religious leader who's judging Jesus 
and the other people involved. Okay, third point, disciples invest in the mission. Disciples invest in the mission. This is kind of like an epilogue, kind of like a little afterword here. Uh, Just a, a few comments about some other ladies that are following Jesus. And so, as I've said, kind of our big idea here is that Jesus is making outsiders into disciples. He's constantly doing that. And we talk about those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are lepers, those who are outsiders, those who are not educated, um, but a specific class of people in the first century that were not allowed to go to school or to study with a rabbi were women. And that's confusing to us because that's not the way things are now, but the reason things are the way they are now and women are allowed to do things that men were allowed to do is because of Jesus. We live this side of the Jesus movement in Western civilization, which has said, ah, women are also allowed to learn, and women are also made in the image of God. Jesus started that, right? And so we see this here in some of Jesus' first followers being women. So chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others. Luke wants you to note that part too. He's just named three important women, and he's like, and many others. There were a lot of other women who provided for them out of their means. What does this mean? It, it means these disciples, these female disciples, were investing in the mission. And so our culture is just always divided about everything, right? We just love to scream at each other. And gender is one more of those issues. And so the culture will tell you there are only two options. The culture will tell you you have to have a really patriarchal view that looks down on women. Or you have this radical egalitarian view that basically doesn't even believe in gender differences and that they're all kind of made up in a construct. The Bible says something different. The Bible actually says many women are, are, are different. And gender is a gift from God. And God's actually assigned different roles to us in certain circumstances. But in most areas of life, men and women are the same. And especially before God, we are equal. Equal dignity. Both made in the image of God. And so the culture will say, oh, you can't, that middle ground, that's messy. You can't believe, you got to go to one extreme or the other. You can't say that there are gender differences and that men and women are equal. Like, that's not okay. No, no, that's, well, that's what the Bible says and that's what Jesus says. So that's what we try to teach here. We have a statement on gender in our constitution. If you want to read that, I'd be happy to talk to you more about this after the service because I know this is a controversial issue. But I don't think it's the main point that this passage is about, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. What I want to just point out is this is just one more place where Jesus is calling those that were outside the norm They weren't typically uh, disciples of a rabbi. He's calling people to become disciples. Luke specifically has three times as many interactions with women and Jesus as other gospels. So it's just like a major theme of Luke, along with other types of people, other classes of people that were often overlooked in the first century. Jesus is saying, oh, no, women as well. Now, he didn't launch the women as apostles, as his missionary emissaries. He had those 12 apostles that we often call the disciples. We use those words back and forth. But he had many disciples, many disciples, many women disciples. And that's what we're seeing here in this text. They provided for him and the team out of their own means. These were important women. Mary Magdalene, 
Seven demons had gone out from her. Church tradition has associated her with other people. Uh, Some of this story, sometimes the one who anointed him, sometimes other stories of anointings. Uh, We're not really sure. The text doesn't give us those details, right? So church tradition typically says more about Mary Magdalene than what the Bible text gives us. But it tells us right here, she'd had seven demons cast out of her. Um, Magdala is a city right there around the Sea of Galilee. My wife and I got to visit it when we were in Israel a couple weeks ago. I've got a picture here of the synagogue in Magdala. It was really cool to see that synagogue because you've got the tile floor and the foundation stones of the original synagogue. You've got the pillars of the original synagogue that Jesus would have taught in. It's one of the many cities around the Sea of Galilee that he preached in and taught in uh, during this time. There's a cool stone that we saw there. Uh, one of their kind of proudest things that they preserve from this ancient dig is the stone that they would lay the scriptures on. So it would be like a decorative stone, kind of like we would have a pulpit. And, you know, and I'd lay the scriptures and lay notes on this pulpit. They would have this stone with carvings, uh, and they'd have pictures and symbols from the temple worship, uh, so that as they're reading God's word, they're thinking of God's temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so that's, that's actually there in Magdala, this little city by the Sea of Galilee. These are, these are real places and real people that Jesus called, that Jesus interacted with, and many of them were women. It says Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod, Herod's household manager. Uh, Herod was the king, right? So th- this was even someone that was in the king's court, had a lot of money, had a lot of influence. And what was she doing? She wasn't hanging out at the king's court. She was traveling with Jesus and his disciples and using her wealth to help sponsor this movement. And Susanna, we don't get a lot of details about Susanna. But then again, he says, and many others. There were many of these women disciples. Jesus makes outsiders into disciples. And those disciples invest in the mission. So how can you invest in the mission? Here's the ask. They financially supported the preaching ministry of Jesus and his first disciples. And churches still today, without apology, say, we would like you to financially contribute to help the church broadcast the good news of Jesus to this city and to the whole world. I want to recognize, though, that we live in a time in history where that is so abused and manipulated and twisted that I want to make a distinction for you. We're going to continue this mission, whether you financially support us or not. God's going to provide for our needs. It's important for you as a disciple of Jesus to invest in Jesus' mission. We recognize that we live in a transient city and many of you are coming and going. You may not know me from Adam, right? So maybe it's not the right time for you to invest in this mission, but it's good for your soul to invest in the mission broadly across the world. You may know a pastor in another town that you lived in before and he is faithful and he's doing good work. Invest in that mission. Give to that mission. It's not really that important to me that you give to this church. What's important to me is as a disciple of Jesus, if you believe Jesus has given to you, it's an important part of your discipleship that you would give back to multiply, send, and broadcast that message to other places. Does that make sense? You can give to this church. We think it's a great church to give to. You could give to some of the other ministries in town that we support, like Foster Love Bell County, Hope Pregnancy Center, as they're helping people with real struggles and sharing the love of Jesus with them. You could sponsor one of our uh, international global outreach partners. We'll have a lot of them coming through this summer. They'll be in town, you know, often in the summertime they come through and talk to supporters and share what's going on out in the field. You could give to those ministries as well. But to be a disciple is to invest out of your material resources 
in the mission and in furthering that mission. Again, not to win brownie points with Jesus, not to get forgiven. It's because you're already set free. It's because he set you free that then you want to use your freedom to help others to be set free. So we'll wrap up here. Big idea is that outsiders become disciples. Outsiders become disciples. And disciples look like something, right? Disciples adore Jesus. How can you be stretched in your practice of adoring Jesus? Disciples are set free by Jesus. It starts with a personal relationship with him, recognizing that Jesus has taken your sin on the cross if you confessed and trust, trusted in Jesus to save you and to set you free. And then finally, disciples invest in the mission of Jesus. They partner with others that are sharing the good news of Jesus financially, but also with your talents, serving in a church, sharing with your own words what Jesus has done for you. Um, One of my favorite verses that talk about this beauty of outsiders becoming insiders is from Ephesians. Uh, Really, the whole book of Ephesians, if you're one of those people that, that feels shameful, that kind of questions if Jesus could really love you, Ephesians is for you. It's all about outsiders being made insiders by the sweet grace of Jesus. And in Ephesians 2, it says, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And it doesn't stop there. It says he seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We are with him. You share in the inheritance. This imagery is is taken beyond just the throne room and it's expanded in Revelation out to the banquet room. It's the wedding scenario. We are brought in to the inner circle. We are made his sons and daughters by his grace. He loves us. So we're going to sing this song in response. Uh, We don't always sing right after the sermon, but we thought this was a good song to sing. Chris already had it, I think, in the mix. Did you already have it in the mix this week? I I suggested it. I came up with it. Now, someone else wrote the song. I can take no credit for this. But this song is a beautiful expression of this reality that Jesus invites us, outsiders like me and like you, to come to him. It's come as you are by Crowder. And here's the line that I love. It says, come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. Jesus is inviting you to come sit at the banquet with him. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in song. Jesus, thank you that you love us that you have set us free from our sin. Help us to adore you because of that truth. Help us to invest in your mission because you've set us free. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.